Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, I thank you for truth, and I thank you for the gift of discipleship, Lord. I pray today for peace as I preach, pray for wisdom as well, not of man, but of God, as I bring truth in the word and share it here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's go. So, many of you will notice by my ethnicity that I was born not in Australia, but in New Zealand. Um, and, no, no, I genuinely was born in New Zealand. Um, and when, when I was younger, my, my family, we, we fell on some hard times and we had to move to Australia, roughly when I was about six or seven. And I remember, it was probably three or four months in, uh, I was sitting in class in year two, um, and my mum came to the, the classroom. It was a bit early, we still had a bit of class time left, but she came in and she had tears in her eyes. And she went up to the teacher, she had a little chat with her, and then the teacher said, David, you're free to go home early. Like, yay, I'm going home early, but mum's crying, so I don't know what's going on here. Um, and there was this old lady down the road, and she basically dropped us and my, my sisters off at this old lady's place. And I'd never met this person before. And at that time, we didn't have a family pet, and so I wasn't comfortable with animals. And they had a big dog, and so I was freaking out. I was like, man, what's going on here? The dog was probably just really happy to see me. He was like, hey, friend, how are you going? And I was like, don't eat me. Um, but what actually had happened is someone had broken into our house and stole a lot of our, our stuff. And, you know, having to move overseas and come to a new country, that, that was pretty difficult. Two weeks later, they burgled us again. And then things were okay, and then we headed it from April into May, and I kid you not, we got burgled a third time. In the span of two months, we got robbed four times. <laughs> but... Even as a kid, I mean, yes, it, it felt bad. I was like, man, these guys, how can they do that to our family? But there was never any doubt in my mind. They were the bad guys. Like, I, I never went to my mom and said, hey, mom, are we the bad guys? Like, no, it, it just made sense. They were on the wrong side of the law. We were on the right. Why? Because it wasn't a matter of opinion. The law existed. It was a standard. It was an objective standard outside of either one of us. It was truth. And so we could appeal to it. We could hold people accountable to it. And so today, I'm going to be talking about accountability. And for us, our standard of truth is the Word of God. So, the passage I'm reading from today is Genesis 3, 1 to 7. If you guys want to get that up. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You, sh you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, first thing, I remember when reading this, I always equated the serpent with Satan. But in the narrative, it just uses the word serpent. 
but the belief that I'm having today is that Satan had possessed a snake in the garden. Um, and we see this in the Bible. We have Balaam and his donkey who was able to be possessed and talk by this time by God um, and speak truth. And so I don't think it's too far-fetched to go with that assumption. But key here in verses 3 to 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent was the beast of the field. He was familiar to Eve. It wasn't some weird creature or like, you know, a devil with a, with a pitchfork. It was something benign, something familiar. And so from that, you have vulnerability, out of familiarity. Also, Eve was alone, and it sort of highlights the way that Satan can sort of manipulate us or play with us. He'll find you when you're alone, it'll look familiar, and then he'll attack. Now, the first thing he does is he questions the voice of God. We look there, and he says to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And this actually mirrors nicely the temptation of Jesus. See, Jesus, when he gets baptized by John the Baptist, he comes out of the water, the dove from heaven falls down as the Holy Spirit, and God the Father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He declares to everyone there, this, this guy here, my son. And in Matthew 4, 3, a few verses later, as Jesus is in the desert, Satan comes up to him and says, well, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus' response is beautiful. He responds back with the word of God. Matthew 4, 4. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And this is why it's important for us to know the word of God. And so when we look back at the Genesis narrative, I like to compare what the word of God was and how Eve responded. So in Genesis 2, 16 to 17, God gave the original command, and he says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Seems pretty straightforward, right? Eat of all the trees in the garden. This one tree here, fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat it. And if you do eat it, you'll die. Now we look at Eve's response, Genesis 2, uh, 3, verse 2 to 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve didn't know the word of God. First, I mean, it was the fruit of the the knowledge of good and evil, and she said the tree in the midst of the garden. So, I mean, that's a bit vague. We, We might give her leniency with that. But then she goes and adds to it and says, Not only can you not eat it, but you can't touch it. And God never said that. In fact, when God comes back and he sees them in the garden, he says, did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat of? He didn't say, did you touch it? And so because Eve didn't know the word of God directly, that caused her shakiness in her her faith and when she was standing up against Satan. In Genesis 2.16, we have the command. And I was trying to work out, okay, well, why does Eve not know the word of God? How did this happen? And you look and you see the command wasn't given to Eve. It was given to Adam and Adam alone. Because in the verses afterwards, God gave the command in 16, and in 18, he finally says, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then, only then, does he create Eve. Eve could have potentially just gotten the word of God from Adam and never heard it directly herself. And I think that mirrors us in some way. Sometimes we hear the God from, whether it's our parents, our leaders, or our friends, but we need to know it ourselves. It's so important. 
And so the, the scene that, that I sort of paint in my mind here is, you know, you've got the garden, and then you've got the serpent that comes along, and it's like, ah, oh, yeah, Eve's by herself. Let's just test the waters a bit. So, Eve, what do you think the word of God is? And Eve was like, oh, this is the word of God. You just imagine Satan being like, oh, that's what you think the word of God is. You're going to love this then. Um, and then he plays this move. Uh, this reminds me, I had a friend of mine um, who, who was a supposedly a Christian. Um, but I remember sitting down with him and he was telling me, Dave, I know this is quite controversial, but I just see sex as sex. And at the time, I didn't know my word of God. And I wasn't able to respond to him in a way that, you know, appealed to the truth or held him accountable to the word. I was sort of like, oh, I don't, I don't agree, but okay. I mean, now, like, I know Jesus says, if, if you even look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Paul, when he talks to the church in Corinth, he talks about fleeing from sexual immorality. And so, not even just for ourselves, but for other people too, we need to know the word. So, let's read on. Genesis 3, verse 4 to 5. For the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So in here, Satan tries to tempt Eve to eat the fruit. There's a point I'd like to make here. Temptation is not sin. And the reason we know that, Jesus was tempted in the desert, but he didn't sin. I mean, if Jesus sinned, we're in big trouble. I mean, let's just not meet up next week. But in Hebrews 4.15, it says as well, when talking about Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, when we go to the lie that Satan tells Eve, it's quite interesting that, yeah, the first part is blatantly a lie. You will not surely die. I mean, that contradicts the word of God when he said, you will die. But verse 5, the claims were, your eyes will be open, you will be like God, and you will know good and evil. All three of those were actually true. I mean, yes, the first part was a lie, but the rest was true. Their eyes were open they did become like God, knowing good and evil. I mean, forgetting the point that they were already made in the image of God, already in his likeness, that they didn't need to be like God. And I think that's the power of, of a lie. Like, it's not just like a blatant lie just shoved in our face. There's elements of truth in that as well. Um, and so, I mean, through the catch, though, I mean, if you read in Genesis 2.25, they were both naked in the garden, and they weren't ashamed. But in Genesis 3.7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See, the way it was presented to them, opening your eyes, man, that sounds amazing. Yeah, I want my eyes to be open. But the reality is, in verse 7, when their eyes are open, they feel shame instead. And so often, sometimes things might be promised to us in temptation, but when you receive it, you find out it's not actually what you wanted in the first place. Now, here's the scary thing. Not only is it truth, but Satan uses the word of God with the temptation of Jesus. In Matthew five, uh, 4, verse 5 to 6, we continue that, uh, that story. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's big. I mean, yes, we've got, the, whole, we've got the, the Bible and we can use it and it's powerful, but Satan can also manipulate that as well. But luckily for us, we have the Holy Spirit, and so we can discern the truth or the spirit behind it. Um, let's quickly grab a drink. 
one of the quotes I've, I've gathered from Brahma over the years. The Word of God will never contradict the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will never contradict the Word of, word of God. And they work in tandem together like that. But I'd like to tell a little story. This is from Matthew 16. So Jesus is on the road with his disciples, and he pitches the question to them. Who do people say I am? And his disciples pop up, and they start saying, Oh, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Some say you're the prophet Jeremiah. But then Jesus turns to them and says, Who do you say I am? And Peter steps up and says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living one. And Jesus returns to him and says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, man, I don't know about Peter, but if I was in his shoes, like that would go straight to my head. Like the moment Jesus turns around, I'd be going to the other disciples like, man, did, did you hear that? Was that just me? Did he say from the Father? Yeah, man, that is intense. Yeah, like, whoa. Did someone suggest Jeremiah? Yeah, Ooh, embarrassing. But if we read further down, chapter 16, 21 to 23, so just a few verses below. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Man, the image I get in my head is like a balloon, and you just press it, and it just deflates. Like, that would suck. What a rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. And of course, Jesus was speaking to the spirit behind him, but that is a massive, massive blow. And so, Within this one chapter, you see Peter hearing directly from God and yet then hearing from Satan. And so even though we do have these two different, you know, we have the Word of God, we have the Holy Spirit, it's not like Satan's putting up, you know, no fight at all. He's still trying to get in there. So I want to look at how the early church dealt with this. So in Galatians 1.12, we have Paul, and he says, For I would have you, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So here we go. Peter is saying, like, none of you share this with gospel with me. This is what I'm preaching when I'm going from town to town, and I received it from God, from God alone. But then we read it in verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 to 2. Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Despite believing that he'd received the gospel from God, directly from God, and that he was preaching it out, Paul still went back to Jerusalem to hold himself accountable. He didn't throw out accountability. He held himself accountable to leadership. So that is the extra thing that we're adding to this. So we hold ourselves accountable to the Word, yes. We also hold ourselves accountable to the Spirit. But we hold ourselves accountable to leadership as well. Um, I, I remember when I, when I first, when I was a teenager, I was really rebellious. My parents are here that can testify to that. Um, I think by the time I was in year 12, um, I was walking to school. And so school would start at 9 o'clock, and I'd wake up at about 9 o'clock and just be like, I don't care and just casually stroll on over at my own time. Um, 
And even though, like, God dealt with a lot of stuff, I still had a lot of rebellion towards my folks and the ways that they were, they were leading the household, and I, I disagreed, and I wouldn't really submit. And I remember when I came to Melbourne Life, there were still bits of that in my heart. And I was blessed enough, where is he, Dan Dev? There you go. I was blessed enough to be in Dan's life group. And I remember sharing this with him. And Dan was like, Dave, the Bible says that the sin of rebellion is akin to witchcraft. I was like, what? <laughs> that is not easy to swallow. And of course, when you're, when you're discipling someone that has rebellion in their heart, it's not like, a, oh, I'm just going to give this to you and I'm sure you're going to take it and run with it. There, there's a high chance they might rebel against you as well. But out of love, we love each other in action and truth. Dan told me the truth. Thank you, Dan. Um, no, no, seriously. Um, and from that, I came to a point where I realized I needed to repent, apologize, and start submitting to my parents' leadership, regardless of whether I agreed or not. And that was actually quite influential in my life. That made a big difference in making me who I am today. But it was through the grace of Dan to hold me accountable to the Word, and then the Word making changes in my life. So let's read on in verse 6. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And at this point here, we see the sin committed, formed in desire. James 1, 14 to 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death, or brings forth death. So at this point, Eve had a desire, she acted on it, and that's the point where we see Eve has sinned. But here's the thing as well. When Eve was tempted in the garden, she was alone. But in verse 7, or verse 6, Adam's now with her, and he sins too. Now Adam was her leader. He was the one that received the word of God. She was holding herself accountable to him. And he failed as well. And it just goes to show, it doesn't matter how good your leaders are, they're human at the end of the day. And sometimes they make mistakes too, and sometimes it really does suck. But I want to tell another story. So this is once again from the Bible, and it's Paul's heart for the Gentiles. So just a background for Paul. Paul suffered a lot. I mean, he went through prison a lot of times. He was tortured. He was stoned to death in Lystra. He was shipwrecked a couple of times as well. And all of this was for the gospel. In Philippians 1, 23 to 24, we see like the epitome of the heart of Paul. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. See, Paul, going through hardships, going through the life, and having the presence of God on him, desired to be with Jesus. He desired to leave the earth and go and be with his Savior. But he stayed for the people. That was the extent of his heart. Now we come across the little encounter in Antioch. See, Peter, head of the church, right? And basically, he was coming from a Jewish background, and he was very happy to, to start sitting down and chatting with Gentiles. But then James sent from Jerusalem a group of Jewish men. And the moment Peter saw them, he had fear in his heart. He became self-conscious, fear of man. And he stopped hanging out with the Gentiles and started hanging out with the, the Jews exclusively. And Paul walked in on this. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That's Galatians 2 to 12. 
man. Talk about being let down by your leaders. Paul's out there, like, running for his life, going into towns where they're trying to kill him, sharing the gospel, and then he comes back. He's like, okay, my heart's with the Gentiles. I'm doing this. And he sees Peter there, having fear in his heart, refusing to eat with the Gentiles because he's concerned what some Jewish people would think. Like, man, you would be, like, pretty knocked up, uh, ticked off. But Paul didn't splint away from the church at that point. He wasn't like, man, forget these guys. Stuff you, Peter. Stuff you, James. And John, especially you, stuff you. No, but like he, I don't, I like John. I'm, I don't know why Peter would say that uh, or Paul would say that. But he still kept himself accountable. He still kept himself under their leadership and he still served. In fact, in that alteration, he held Peter accountable to the truth that they had received. See, it always gets me that God uses humans to do his work on earth. I mean, like, we are broken. Like, we make mistakes. We, we, we stuff up all the time. But he chooses us to spread his kingdom on earth. And it does suck when we get let down, mistreated, abused, or whatever it may be. But it doesn't justify us then to say, all right, well, forget all of this. I'm going to do things my way now. It doesn't mean that we should no longer hold ourselves accountable. Because to do that is no different from us being in the garden with Adam and Eve. So, I think I'm finishing quite a bit sooner than I thought I would. Is that the time? I am good. All right. <laughs> so maybe I'll invite the users back up then. I, I genuinely thought I had more. Like, I kid you not. I guess it's dense. Um, <laughs> So in my own life, I hold myself accountable. I hold myself accountable to Carvin, to Brum as well. I mean, even this, this sermon here, like, went through both their eyes multiple times, and I had chats with Brum, even leading up to yesterday, where he's like, what about this or that? Um, but in the same way that I hold myself accountable to Carvin, for example, I know that Carvin holds himself accountable to Brum. Brum himself holds himself accountable to the board, to the ACC, to Pastor Hills. We're all accountable. Can we get by without holding ourselves accountable? Yeah. Why don't we? Because it's not about us. It's not about Brum. It's not about Carvin. It's not about me. It's about the people. And so because of that, we hold ourselves accountable. I love Brum's little view on um, discipleship. Friendship and relationship with accountability. That is discipleship. And that's the Great Commission. When Jesus went up to heaven, or just before, He said, go out into all nations, making disciples of all men. In other words, form relationships and make yourself accountable. But it's not just like a defensive thing that we do. Like, ah, Satan, we want to fight back, so we're going to hold ourselves accountable. Something happens as well when we hold ourselves accountable. There's a transformation that happens within us too. We no longer simply represent Christ in name as Christians, but in character too. And that is the power of the cross. So that each and every single one of us here today is like Jesus Christ in character. It's almost as if he's walking on the earth again, but not in isolation, in multitude. I mean, it started off with the 12 disciples, and it was hundreds and thousands, and we're the fruit of that here today. We are their disciples. Imagine, like, if all of Melbourne, all of Australia, you name it, all the Christians in the world had the character of Christ. How amazing would that be if every single one of us here was like Jesus Christ walking on earth again? That's powerful. But let's start with Melbourne Life. I think we can do it. All we have to do is hold ourselves accountable to the Word, to His Spirit, and to our leaders. That's it.
That was a very, it's a simple message, but it's a very profound message because accountability really is, is the mark of Christianity. It's this, because why accountability? I like the way you point is the truth of the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and one another. Those three things in balance is very important because if you think, oh, it's just the Word of God, just the Word of God, without the Holy Spirit, actually the Bible says it takes the Spirit of truth to lead us into all truth. We need the Holy Spirit to understand the Word of God, the truth of the Word of God. And also we need one another because there's something called the heart of man. The Bible describes it as the heart of man is desperately wicked and who can know it? <laughs> so, you know, as I, Diane and I, as we were listening, following the, what's happening in America, the mess that's going on, it, it just shows that you can interpret the law any way you want to. And with the condition of your heart, you bring the word of God according to the condition of your heart. And, and, and in that situation, you even sort of block out the, the, the word of the Holy uh, the, the voice of the Holy Spirit. But you need somebody somewhere to hold you accountable. That is not what God wants you to do. Just like Peter. How can someone be so filled with the Holy Spirit? Preach the first sermon on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people got saved. That's a, that's a very good ministry. First sermon ever preached, 3,000 people got saved. Second sermon in chapter, Acts chapter 3. The total of people, believers, were 5,000 people. And yet can still be driven by his own insecurity. Where is the truth of God in that? Where is the Holy Spirit in that? It took Paul to stand up to him and say, that is hypocrisy. <laughs> but the good news is this when you read the end of the second, second uh, epistle of Peter chapter 1 I think verse 20 that shows that he's got a good heart good, good spirit do you know he commended Paul's writing in, in his epistle in second epistle of Peter in chapter 1 he said I think verse 20 he said the teaching of Paul sometimes is difficult to understand, but for, for those who have, haven't got the right condition of the heart, they sort of reject it at their own peril. Just like they do other scriptures. So what Peter was saying is that Paul's writing is as good as the scripture itself. <laughs> now that shows, shows a man who actually wasn't offended about what Paul did. To the point that he commended the writing of Paul. That's what I think we need to be as Christians. Somebody needs to tell us something when we miss it. Doesn't matter where you are. Doesn't matter where you are. For me, it's my wife to begin with. <laughs> no, it's true. I want to say this, guys. Especially husbands. You see this? 
if you cannot give it to your wife where she can take your phone or your computer anytime she wants to, something's not right. If your wife cannot have access to your whatever computer, your laptop, iPad, and all those things, that's the beginning of the fall down of your accountability. She needs to know everything going on in your life. Same thing, wives to your husband. And for you young people, you need to have somebody say, what do you like? You talk about Carvin. Carvin, you can, you can check my, my iPhone. I mean, come on. To me, I consider that safety, you know? That's my, sa- my safety thing, right there. Let's be people of truth. Because being spiritual pers- a spiritual person is not an event. It's not just a one experience. You know, sometimes we experience this sense of the presence of God and it's like, that's going to fix it. No, no, it's a journey. Just like Peter. <laughs> the fear of man still haunted him. But we need one another. So as we close the meeting, that's a very good sermon. Good points. Nice to look at short to the point and short. <laughs> all right, let's just, uh, why don't you all lift your hands. We're going to, just. I'm going to pray God's prayer over all of you. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, it is a privilege just to stand up here and just to talk with, with our people, to our people. These are amazing people, Lord. So, Lord, as every hand lifted up before you, Lord, I prophesy in the name of Jesus an outpouring of your blessing. Right now, Father, every need is met, Lord. Right where, where, where they are, Lord Jesus, where they're at, whether it's relationship, you know, needs in relationship, whether it's financial needs, whether it's physical healing, Lord, that is needed, anything, Lord. Father, I pray. We're not pouring of your blessing, and I pronounce it, I prophesy this in the name of Jesus. But Lord, this blessing will not stop right here, will not stop with your people, but it will flow out of our lives and touch many lives around us our friends at work, our neighbors, family members. I prophesy this in Jesus' name, amen.